Well, take that Bible and look over to the book of James this morning. We come to really a rather fascinating passage of Scripture, and you've read it before, no doubt, and our goal will be to explain it and to exegete it in such a way that the text becomes clear to you. There's a couple of navigational points in this Uh, exposition here, meaning that there's a couple of uh, interpretive issues that we've got to deal with, and I invite you into the thought process with me on that. But let me go ahead and read 1, 9 through 12. We'll finish that paragraph on the testing here of trials in our life. I will be away next week speaking for Chris Mueller at his, at his church down south as he came here. And then we'll get back and we'll click right in onto the second test, which is the area of temptation in one thirteen through 18. That can be life-changing for us. So uh, be reading ahead. Let me read beginning at one nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now we come to a very interesting text of scripture in the sense there that we're asking the question, who is James really addressing here? Now you can see that fairly quickly. If you look down at verse nine, he's addressing certainly the lowly brother and the lowly brother in the midst of trials. It's still in the context of trials is to, as you see there, boast in his exaltation, then he addresses in verse 10, the rich in his humiliation, because of the flower of the grass, he will pass away. The ideal is he is to boast as well in his humiliation. The question would come to us is, who is that rich man? Is that rich man a believer? Or is that rich man an unbeliever? Is James coming to this text with us with a note of irony and saying regarding the poor or the lowly brother in verse 9, he's going to boast in his exaltation. In other words, he's made low by his trial, and so he's going to boast in his exaltation. I think we understand that, that when you're low, you're really high, that when you have nothing, you possess everything. When you're in spiritual poverty, if you will, you have the spiritual riches. We can explain that. But the real question comes is, who is the rich man? And how is the rich man, in verse 9, to boast, if you will, in his humiliation? Is he encouraging the poor and rich alike to take pride in their lowly position? Or is he actually bringing a contrast and irony saying that the poor man is to boast in his status, but the rich man in a place of irony is going to fade away and all of his riches are going to fade away and he's going to have nothing. 
Well, we've got to discuss that. Now, here as we come to the text, the big picture, of course, is that our faith is being tested in trials. And it runs from verse 2 all the way down through verse 12. And remember, we've said all along that he's given us several features to enable us to understand life's trials. And we begin to walk through those, and here they come up. We'll hit those quickly. Your response in life's trials is one of joy. Does that come up there on that screen, Wesley? Um, And there it is. You're to respond in an attitude of joy. The rationale in verse 3 there is that it's producing that quality of steadfastness, that quality of endurance, that ability, remember we said, to remain under the weight. And then we noted thirdly there the resolve. It's a command in verse 4 where it says, and let steadfastness have its perfect result. In other words, you're commanded to stay under the weight. You're commanded to stay under the trial. In fact, I had a, um, a brother this week, not even in the life of our church, where I was just purposed in my heart to pray for him and call him. And, and I Skyped him. He's overseas. And I, I just thought, where is this brother? And as I called him, he was under a tremendous weight of pressure in ministry, a tremendous kind of fork in the road of what he should do at this local church in which he's at. And I can tell he wanted relief of the burden. He wanted the burden cast off. He wanted a decision to be made. He's waiting for something actually even to get to the States and I reminded him that the Lord has him exactly where he wants. And rather than jettison the trial, rather than jettison the weight and cast it off, I encouraged him that he needs to remain under the weight that the Lord is in control. And that's that resolve that at times we just can't get out. We've got to stay in. The reward there, fourthly, is it leads to spiritual maturity. And then we said there's times when you don't know quite what the Lord's doing, so you request their e-wisdom in trials. But we noted that if you request that wisdom, the requirement is that you must pray in faith. Now, as we approach here, verses 9 through 12, we're looking at the final two features that enable us to understand life's trials. I want to look at your reaction and then finally your return. But let's look and turn our focus now to your reaction in life's trials. And he looks at both the poor and the rich believer in reacting to life's trials. But let's first look at the reaction of the lowly brother. The reaction of the lowly brother. And now you're going to find yourself in one of these two categories this morning. Hard for me to say that. You're either the lowly brother, or I take it as you'll see it in a moment, you're a rich brother. Now what's hard for me to say that is if you've been anywhere overseas, all of you are probably rich. All of you probably have more than one car. Not all of you, but most of you in your family. If you have a cell phone, you're probably considered rich. If you walked into your wardrobe this morning and you had options upon what to put on, then you have more than most people. But James here is giving us a little bit of a paradigm and a perspective of how we react to these trials and what our response should be. So first, the lowly brother. Look at the text in verse 9. Everything is found in the Word of God. It says, let, here James says, 
the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, you'll note there in verse 9, just a little background, it says, let the lowly brother. Here is a member of the believing community. And the the ESV uses this word here in verse 9, the lowly brother. It kind of conveys a little bit of a double meaning. First, the, the word does not necessarily mean a poor person. That word there for lowly just means humble. It means low in one's attitude. It's the ideal of a humble, lowly attitude, and I mean that in a positive way. But secondly, that word there for lowly, humble, or just the word lowly, speaks of one who is socially and one who is economically poor. And you remember that in the context here, many of these Jewish believers had lost home. They had lost possession in the face of persecution. They were, in the eyes of the society, the low man on the totem pole. Insignificant, if you will, in the world's eyes. Yet, despite being lowly, look what James says there in verse 9. They are to boast, if you will, in his exaltation. They are, according to another translation, to glory in their high possession. So James says here that the brother of humble circumstances or lowly circumstance is to do this. And it's actually a command, which is funny. He's not giving you a suggestion like it would be really nice if you would boast in your position. He's actually commanding you, if you will, present imperative to boast or glory in your exaltation. Now that word for boast there, as you see that in verse 9, is the idea there of a feeling of pride. Now, the ESV says there in verse 9, in his exaltation, the, the idea there is you are to feel a sense of pride. You say, well, Scott, pride's wrong. Well, not that kind of pride, because you're actually commanded to boast in this. You're to boast, look at it again in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Not all boasting is wrong, and certainly maybe in your heart, my heart, you are to take pride in your lowly position, like it says the the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and what? And he knows me. So you can see there in that passage, there is a righteous pride, if you will. It's not that you're boasting in your wisdom or in your might or in your riches. You're boasting in this, that you understand and know me. And then it says in 924 of Jeremiah that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, the Lord said, I delight. So here, as you think of this opening reaction, if you will, of the lowly brother, it conveys a, the best way to say it, is a very strong sense, a a very strong personal reaction, a feeling of pride or exaltation in being made low. So really what the Spirit of God is saying is that as you come into trial, 
as you have these various trials, you are not only to respond in joy. Here, the right perspective is that you're to have a sense of pride as to what the Lord is doing. That though you are in the low position, either financially or even socially, or you're beset by trials, you have been exalted, if you will, in the person of Christ. James is saying, be proud of your position. And again, the present imperative leaves you with no option but to boast in your exalted position. So clearly, as God may indeed, and maybe has, stripped you of what you once owned, he is maturing you in countless other ways. In fact, one man said of these believers that he may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the water of life. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he's been received by God. He may be low on the earth, but he is exalted in heaven. He may have no home on earth, but he has a home in heaven. And so as you walk through these things, God in many ways is humbling us to teach us the spiritual virtue of what we have in Christ Jesus. In fact, look over to James chapter 2, verse 5. Remember that there when James just said in that next chapter when he said, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not 2-5 God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? There you have that statement that he's chosen the poor in this world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom. And that kingdom he has promised to those who love God. And so here is this reaction of the lowly one, that we are sons of God, that we are seated at his right hand, that all things belong to us, that you are an heir of God. So boast is the ideal or glory in your eternal riches in Christ Jesus. No wonder it was the Apostle Peter who said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter said that he's given us an inheritance that he said is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is kept for you in heaven. And so here is this response. That lowly brother, that lowly sister in verse 9 is to glory or to boast in his or her exaltation. In other words, what we don't have here, we have in the spiritual riches in the kingdom of God. I'm thinking of Paul in that language in Romans 8, that if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. And do you remember that Paul said in Romans 8.18, I consider, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you may be, in terms of your circumstances, humble, but in your glorious future, you will be a conqueror. And so our future inheritance will be beyond 
will be way beyond our realization. As Paul said, nothing will be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so here is the paradox of life. It is to understand in the midst of trial that to be low is to be high and that to have nothing, if you will, is to possess everything. And rather than focusing Grace Church of the Valley, on your lack of material resources on earth. Focus on your spiritual resources in Christ. And here in this context, some of them had lost so much materially. James says, remember, you possess everything in Christ spiritually. Think, I love the hymn. It expresses it well. It says, a tent or a cottage Why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still may I sing all glory to God. I'm a child of the King. So listen, he says to us, to you, to whoever this applies to, don't be gloomy. Don't be pessimistic in your trials. The low are really high. And so here, the poor are very rich spiritually. In fact, look what he says, though, as he goes on in verse 10. He says, and the rich, though, in verse 10, in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So we looked there at the beginning at the reaction of the lowly brother. Let me take you here, secondly, to the reaction of the rich man in humiliation. Now, what does this mean in verse 10? Pages have been written to discern whether James is writing about a rich Christian or rather he's, is he writing about a rich unbeliever? Now, I would say to you that you know it's not easy to be over dogmatic on that and neither interpretation is free of difficulty. In fact, if I said that it's a rich believer, You have other places in the book of James where he's obviously giving a scathing rebuke to the rich unbeliever. Let me show you. Look over in James chapter 5. You remember there, and we'll get there. Come now in 5.1, you rich. And there he's addressing the rich, and he's not addressing rich believers here. 5.1, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evident against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in the days, in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and so forth. Obviously, he's not speaking to a rich believer there. He's addressing there, is he not a rich unbeliever? And certainly, there's many places in history where the rich in this context had taken these people out of their homes, out of their possessions, and out of their wealth. However, 
I don't know if it's so easy that way. If, if you said this is a rich unbeliever, then if you look down again at verse 10, he would be speaking a note of irony there, would he not? Let the rich and the rich in his humiliation, because like the grass of the field, he will pass away. In other words, you ought to boast the lowly person because the irony is though the rich have everything, in the end they're going to fade away and you would take it as an unbeliever. I actually think, though, it's best to see it as a rich man who is in the flock and who loves God. And I'll I'll tell you why, and you can reason with me. I'd say the commentators are about split on this. You can open 20 of them. Ten would have them as a rich man unbeliever, and 10 of them would have him as a rich believer. And so you're having to dive into the context and say, what is he addressing here? One of the reasons why some would say that it's an unbeliever is look down again at verse 10, where it says there, and the rich in his humiliation, there's no uh, mention of the word brother. You've got the word brother in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, but it just says, and let the rich. And there's no mention of brother, but I believe it's actually supplied there that as he speaks of the lowly brother, he can speak here equally of the rich brother. And I do think that you had some who were wealthy in the flock. If you remember, look over in chapter 2, where the man came in the gold ring in 2-2, and the fine clothing, he comes into your assembly, and the poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So you recognize that it could very well be speaking to someone who's a rich believer who walked into the flock. And uh, and when you get to chapter 4, remember when he says there in 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, we'll engage in such and such a business, we'll make such and such a profit. He says, you don't even know what you're asking. Your life is but a vapor. I think there were wealthy people in the flock. So it's hard to say, is it a rich unbeliever? You could bend the passage that way. You could say, is it a rich believer? I think so, because they were in the assembly in chapter 2. And I think these businessmen, if you go over to chapter 4, look at the language there in verse 13, come now you who say. And whenever James says, come now you who say, you think he's just using that as a rhetorical device. I don't. I think he's listening to people in the flock. I think there was a group of people in the flock who were saying today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town, we're going to spend a year there, and we're going to make a profit. In other words, there may be people in our church who act just like that and think that the place is at their disposal, the time is at their disposal, the profit is at their disposal. I think he's speaking to people here in the flock in James chapter 4. So as you turn back now to James chapter 1, I believe it's best to see it here as as a rich man who is in the flock and who loves God. And here I believe what he's saying is just as the lowly man in his trial is to boast, is to glory in his high position, watch this, the believer who is rich, who is well off, should glory in his humiliation and rejoice when trials come because trials will teach him the transitory nature of material things. Now, you say, well, Scott, look down at verse 10. What does that mean that the rich in his humiliation? What is the humiliation here for the rich? 
Well, the humiliation can refer to being stripped of riches and possessions. It could be that as this man loves God and is in the flock and was once wealthy, but it looks like he's still wealthy, he was stripped of that, and he, his humiliation is that because of his love for Christ, he's lost part of what he possessed. But it could be that James' encouragement to the rich is to take, here's the thought, pride in his humiliation is to boast, if you will, in his humiliation. Watch this. Not in his wealth, not in his elevated social position, but he is to boast in his identification with Christ and his people, which is a matter of humiliation in the eyes of the world. And so here, James looks and appears in verse 10, saying the rich man should boast in his lowly estate because he knows this. He knows that all he owns, here seems to be the thought, will pass away. And like the flower of the grass, he too will pass away. So his humiliation comes in that everything he owns and everything he possesses, he can't take it with him. That like the flower of the field, it's, it's going to pass. Now, look at that language there. It says that in verse 10, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. James is obviously borrowing language, if you want to look at it later, out of Isaiah 46 through 8, where there it actually says, like the flowering grass, he will pass away. And if you've ever been to Israel, you recognize the flowers which are so abundant in February are actually scorched by May. In fact, in some places and sometimes in Israel, those flowers that bloomed in the spring will be gone sometimes in a matter of hours. And I think James is getting at the language here of Psalm 103, verse 15. As for man, it says, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. And so the transitory nature of possessions ought to drive the wealthy to the realization that even their wealth and even their riches do not last forever. Thinking of Paul, remember when Paul said this in the pastoral epistles? He told Timothy to say this, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So watch this. That like the lowly brother, faith in Christ equally blesses the rich believer whose riches are temporary and it fills him with a spirit of lowliness and true humility. I I think Linsky, the commentator, put it this way. He said, as the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches, and the two are equals, he said, by faith in Christ. In fact, the rich realize 
that at the cross, he stands at a level ground with his poor brother. They are both given a new status in Christ, and it is their ground of glorying, if you will. And it is here in the text that the rich man and the poor brother find their meeting point in Christ. Listen, whether you have nothing or whether you have much, the real advantage in the midst of trial is your relationship with the living God and the true riches in heaven that will never fade away, right? In fact, when the wealthy, listen, lose a daughter, when they lose a son, when they lose a wife, when they lose a husband, when they lose a loved one, wealth is no comfort. Listen, when you lose your health, when you become betrayed by a friend, when you are wrongfully maligned, when you are sued repeatedly for money, and money cannot buy that peace of mind in any way or decrease the pain. In fact, the the thought here to the rich, I think, is that of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became what? Poor. And just as Christ emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, here is the rich man, if you will, identifying with his brothers in the body of Christ and sharing and rubbing shoulders with them, thinking of the life of Christ. I'm thinking of what Paul told Timothy. Do you remember this? If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. And he warned us, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And he said, for the love of money is the roots of all sort of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And so here there's an exhortation to the rich that like the flower, their possessions will quickly flayed away. That what they've sought and what they've earned will, will actually pass away. And so this rich man, if you go back in verse 10, is rich in his humiliation. And why is that? Well, he knows this biblically spiritually, that like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. I'm thinking of the writer of Proverbs when he said, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from the consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heaven. And so the rich man, if you will, in this flock and in this book is rich in his humiliation. Why? Because he knows that everything he possesses will pass away. I'm thinking of Job, and you know it well, in 121. Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and what? Naked I shall return. In other words, both he and his possessions will pass. You enter into this life with nothing. You leave this life with nothing. The old adage or the old joke was, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer with it, right? So you just can't take it with you. In fact, he gives us an illustration. Look in James 1.11. He said, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls off and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away 
in the midst of his pursuits. James just uses four verbs here in verse 11, graphically depicting this. He said the sun, if you, if you see it this way, it rises, it withers, it falls off. And here, James says in verse 11, it says that its beauty, he says, perishes. And the verbs picture the rapid destruction of these flowers. Now, he mentions there in verse 11, he mentions the sun rises and it's scorching heat and it withers um, the, the grass. The scorching heat may refer to the burning sun and the wind of a Scirocco, they would call it, that would blow in from the Arabian desert. And the Scirocco or the Scirocco had kind of like what they would say is oven-like effects on the green vegetation in a matter of hours. The vegetation would just simply fall off and be destroyed and its beauty would be ruined. And I think, again, here is a reminder to the wealthy of the transitory nature of material things. That what you seek after, you realize you're a steward, but how quickly they can be taken from you. Doug Moo in his commentary said this. He said, and I thought this was helpful. He said he exhorts each of them to look toward their spiritual identity as the measure of their ultimate significance. He said to the poor believer, tempted to feel insignificant and powerless, um, he said, because the world judges a person on the basis of money and status. James says, take pride in your exalted status in the spiritual realm as one who is seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus himself. Then Moose said to the rich believer, tempted to think too much of himself, because the world holds him in high esteem, James says to them, take pride, not in your money, not in your social position, not in things that are doomed all too soon to fade away forever, but paradoxically, he says, in your humble status as a person who identifies with the one who was despised and rejected by the world, end of quote. And I think that's well said. I think we need the prayer of a man by the name of Joseph Bailey who prayed it this way, Lord, burn eternity into my eyeballs. We need that, don't we? So here's what James says. You're going to navigate through life's trials. You need to respond with joy. The rationale is you need endurance and character in your life. The request is for wisdom. The reward is maturity. You're, you're praying here that God would grant you the wisdom you need. The requirement is faith. The reaction is you're boasting. And then look finally here at your result. Look at it in verse 12. It says there, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For once he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And here, this result really comes full circle in verse 2. Here's the final result for those who understand God's trials from God's perspective. Look what it says there in verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. In other words, blessed is the man who remains under the weight. Blessed is the guy 
who's not caving in. Blessed is the guy who goes as far as he can or that woman who lives under that trial. As you live under that, verse 12, as you remain steadfast, James said, you'll be blessed. In fact, that's the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when literally it said, blessed is the one who's poor in spirit and blessed is the one who hunger and thirst. In fact, you could even interpret verse 12 to say, happy is that man or happy is that woman. And obviously this blessing includes not only present fulfillment now in this life, but also the future hope of the kingdom of God. So here is why the lowly brother can boast in his exaltation. Here is why the rich man can exalt in his humiliation because the blessing comes from persevering in trial and refusing to give up. That, James says, is genuine faith. In fact, look again at verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has, it says here, stood the test. Now, that is the same word, if you look back in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith. So you're being tested, and here you're standing, if you will, or you stood the test. It's the idea of being approved. To stand the test or to be approved was the term used for the testing of coins to determine their genuineness. And the believer is approved and found genuine, and he's found to be authentic. And as you stand that test, look what you will receive. Here's the return. Verse 12, it says, the crown of life. In other words, there's a reward that's coming. And you'll note that he put it in the future tense, did he not? You will receive the crown of life. The reward, we believe, is given at the second coming. Say, so what is that crown? What, what is that that's, that we receive? What is the reward? Well, the crown, simply the Greek word is stephanos. And it's, it's a term that comes from the, the athletic world. And it was actually, the crown was a stephanos or it was a, a wreath that would be placed on the victor's head, symbolizing his triumph in their Olympic Games. But most importantly for us, it is to recognize that this crown is not experienced only here in this life, but you will find that ultimate fulfillment in the coming day of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, very well then, you say, well, Scott, what is that crown of life? Well, I believe that crown of life is the common reward of a believer's salvation. The crown of life is God's gracious reward given to those whose faith is tested and tried and found to be genuine. The crown is given to believers at the coming kingdom of God. So I don't believe this is a special crown. If you're in Christ this morning and your faith is approved, your faith is attested, your faith in trial, your faith in temptation is found to be genuine, you will receive this crown, literally in the language, which consists of life. It is the crown of eternal life. In fact, that word's used in many places in Revelation 2.10, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into the prison, it says, that you may be tested And you will have tribulation 10 days, but be faithful until death. And there it says, I will give you the crown of life. 
So the crown is awarded to just genuine believers whose faith is tested and found true. Remember, Peter used it in 1 Peter 5, 4, when he said, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading, there he calls it, the crown of glory. So sometimes in the New Testament, you see it listed as the crown of righteousness. Sometimes it's mentioned as in 1 Peter 5, 4, the crown of glory. Here in verse 12, it's mentioned as the crown of life. And I believe that crown will be received by every believer. So I'm making a distinction there that it is not one of the rewards that believers will receive based on their faithfulness, according to 1 Corinthians 3, but it is the common reward of salvation bestowed on all believers because of their saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, who does he give that crown to? Look down that last phrase. It says, which God, I love that little phrase, has promised to those who love him. In other words, the ones who love God are by definition a believer. That those who receive that crown are the ones who love him. Look, look back, if you will. Go back to 2 Timothy just for a second. Do you remember that text there in 2 Timothy? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, And in verse 8, it says, and you remember when Paul, looking at the end of his life, said in 4.6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I've kept, or I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, here it is. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, See, there it is. It's not crown of life, but it's crown of righteousness. But I think synonymous. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And so there, that crown is reserved to those who love God and here both rich and poor who love him in the midst of their trial who love them in the midst of their difficulties, will receive that crown. I'm thinking of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.9 when he says, Things which eye has not seen, nor ear has not heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And so he will give you that crown, but you persevere. And so James says, here is the test of our faith. Here is the test of of our trials. And as we walk in obedience, understanding our response, he will continue to grow us. Doesn't mean that we're perfect. Doesn't mean that we don't stumble. It doesn't mean that we don't ever fall. But when you encounter these trials, here is what we are to understand from God's perspective. So whether you have nothing or whether you have much, we're both bound to boast in our shame, and our humiliation, at the spiritual riches that we have in Christ, and identifying with the person of Christ that we might be found holy. Okay? May God bless his word.